You know what happened after the field trip to the soda factory, right? We had a pop quiz. Welcome back to another episode of Teach This Teacher. This episode, we will be covering how to serve your special education students better. And later on, we're going to have an interview with Michael Rotondo, also known as Mr. Mike on Twitter. A lot of you might know him. He has over 20 thousand followers. Let's get started. So everyone, we are going to talk about how to serve our special needs students, our special education students better. This is something that I could have improved greatly in when I was in the classroom. And to be honest, We're all special education teachers. We're not all certified in special education, but we will, in one way or another, serve special ed students, students in special education. I am so glad that we are past the days where special education was a room, and now we look at it as a service. So we don't say, you know, I'm going down to the special education room, but every room serves every student, whether they be special ed whether special education as far as having needs, or whether they be gifted, or whether they be our, like I was in school, run-of-the-mill on the average student or somewhere on that RTI pyramid, whether RTI level one, two, or three. So we have such a diverse classroom, and that's life, right? Diversity. When you go to work, you're not going to have your special education coworkers and your early advanced coworkers, but we have to learn how to work with people with disabilities and people that are a whole lot, quote unquote, smarter than us. And I say, quote unquote, because we all have our talents, don't we? I remember having special education students in my room that were actually very gifted in some areas. They could do math problems in their head faster than I could. And so really, we have to look at every student not as a label, as special ed or gifted or whatever, because we have to look at them as an individual. They all have their strengths and their weaknesses. Some of our special needs students are great artists. They are great readers, but they could have special needs in math. So we all know this. We're classroom teachers, but it's just important to remind ourselves. So I have a few things written down, and then I'm going to talk about a study that I found on this. I just have a few things that I remember that I wish I could have done better and some things that I felt like I did really well in the classroom. So shout out to the special education teachers that I worked with, because, you know, you get those legally binding documents, those IEPs, and uh, they can be cumbersome, to say the least, to read through, especially if you have a good number on your role. But one thing that my special education co-teachers did was they would give me something called a snapshot. And I believe that they found these forms online and they bought them, somebody created them, or and they created some of them themselves. And it just gave a little snapshot that they included with the IEP. So of course, we're still required to read the entire IEP 
know the student's goals, to know the student's modifications. But this snapshot I could keep in my desk to get a quick reminder, especially at the beginning of the year. Those snapshots were really important, the most important things out of that IEP to remember as I would go and teach my uh, special needs students that were identified. So I have four tips that I always tried to do and had fairly good success with my special education students. The first thing I tried to do is believe in them, in their ability. It's really easy to get sucked into a thought pattern that a student can't learn something. Now, we know with IQ levels, there is literally things that students cannot learn with certain disabilities, okay? No matter how long you teach and reteach, their IQ level prohibits them from reaching that level of analysis or so on and so forth. So we understand that, but we can still believe in them and we can still find their strengths. So for example, when I taught social studies, some of the standards were identify various countries in certain continents. One of my severely disabled students as far as mentally, not physically, but he had a honestly a very low IQ. He could remember where every one of those states were or those countries were in the continent. That was one thing he could do is identify and recall. So you know what I did? I lifted him up in that. I knew he was strong in that. So I called on him multiple times. And it was amazing to the other students because maybe before that, he was never called on in other classes, but I found the thing that he was really good at and I displayed it. That built his confidence and it showed the other students that he's one of our classmates as well. He, he's capable of learning as well. So along with that, I also say push them. You believe in them and then you make them believe in themselves. So you push them and you say, I think you can do this. I think you've got this. So we know there's various ways to do that. Sometimes I would pair them with students that were gifted or advanced. And I knew who would maybe be doing the majority of the work. But I always went by that group and made sure that that student with those special needs were doing what they were capable of doing. So, for example, the way this looked in the classroom is some student, if they were doing a group work, I would tell the, you know, the advanced or on-level student that you write what the other student dictates. But my special needs my student was required to participate as well. So they're telling they might couldn't spell a lick or they maybe couldn't, you know, put it in written word, but they could tell you the answer all day long. And those are the kind of things that I would do to push them and to require something from them. Also, go the extra mile for them. Number three, go the extra mile. I did this in the best short story I can give to tell you what this means is we had a requirement that students would have a certain number of AR points, which was accelerated reading program. You read a book, take the test, get points. Of course, I had to make that goal reasonable for my special education students, but I still made a goal for them and required them to stick to it. But I had this one student that I already referred to. The kid was in the eighth grade, and I always tell people he could not read. I didn't. I don't say his name, of course, but I tell people I have a student in the eighth grade that if you put the sentence before him, the cat was black, he would not have been able to read it. This was not because of a lack of education. It was because of his ability. You know what I did? I brought this kid in after school when we were waiting on the buses, and I read to him short stories, and I sat there and read the questions and the answers. And you know what? 
he could comprehend when someone else read it to him. So that was his modified way of still meeting his goal. But that took a lot for me. After I had been teaching the whole day, I was done or mentally and physically. And so it, it's like, here we go again. I'm sitting down doing something else. And then sometimes I would let him listen to a audio book on YouTube, uh, Eric Carroll, something very easy to understand. And then I would have to still read those questions and answers to him. And sometimes he still wouldn't get them right. So I would have to take out some of the wrong answers and say, okay, the answer is between A and D. Which one do you think it is? But I was going the extra mile and he appreciated it. And that kid really, really had a lot of respect for me. The last thing I'll say is defend your special education students. If you hear them being bullied, if you hear them being mocked or picked on, I never for a second tolerated that. Now, of course, I had to be smart about how I did it because I didn't want the situation to get worse for them. But you find a way to put a stop to that nonsense because they already feel very insecure and very unworthy a lot of times and you don't need other folks making it worse. So I'm going to really quickly tell you about this really great research that I found. It's from the Center of School Turnaround. Uh, It's from charterschoolcenter.ed.gov and it's titled Assessing and Improving Special Education. The article is in the show notes and what I like about this, right at the beginning they give you a chart of what good special education programs look like in several categories what average or acceptable school programs look like, and what unacceptable looks like. And I'm going to give you just one example. The example that I'm going to give you is their area of expert knowledge of policies and regulation. Okay, so expert knowledge, how much teachers and school personnel knows about special education. So a well-run program with the highest standards looks like this, special and general education staff, both of them and the administrations demonstrate high level of knowledge about implementing effective programs for students with disability. Also, those programs reflect understanding of how state and local policies work. That's high standard that the special education and the general teacher and the administration have high level of knowledge. Acceptable is administration and special education staff demonstrate knowledge of regulations and policies. So notice they left out the general ed teachers. They're weak in that area. Then an unacceptable program looks like this. Staff rely heavily on only the administration and the special education teachers to meet compliance requirements. So just the bare minimum. So they have this chart in several categories. They have it in what does the PL look like? Professional learning for high performing special education programs, mid-grade and low. They have staff knowledge of social, emotional, and behavior needs, what that looks like in a high-performing environment, mid and low. And they have what your learning environment looks like, what family engagement looks like. So you've got to check this out. I think it's super, super informative. Um, It's an easy read, especially if you're an administrator, you might want to check this out. So look in the show notes and find that. And we're going to button it up there because Michael Rotondo has a lot to share with us. All right, everybody, we are here with Mike, and he is a special education teacher, one of our neighbors to the north, Canada. Is that right, Michael? That's correct. 
Awesome. So I'm really excited about this interview because all I know about education, I know from a United States standpoint. So we're going to compare and contrast the two. How do special education programs work in Canada and the United States? And we're just going to have a great conversation. But the goal of our conversation, everybody, is just to understand how to serve our special needs students better. I was a general ed teacher, but I had special education students in my class every year, and I always felt like I was not serving them the best that I could. And so this episode hopefully will address some of those concerns for all of us gen ed teachers out there. So um, Michael, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your career in education. I always like to ask this to SPED teachers as well. Did special education choose you or did you choose special education? Did you know that's what you wanted to do or did the circumstances kind of push you over that way? Or tell us a little bit about your yourself and your career. That's a great question because that's the question I normally get as a male being in education. Mm-hmm. How did I get into education? And like you said, education kind of chose me and it fell into my lap. I worked with kids, always worked with kids from uh, 16 years old on, like tutoring and things like that. Right. I got involved in day camps and then sleepaway camps and things like that. And as that progressed, I started, we started seeing more children with special needs coming involved. So I started getting involved with that and trying to really accommodate them. And it just naturally evolved. Like I started working at some private schools, doing like animating activities and things like that. And, you know, you get a lot of encouragement from people that say, you know, you're very good at this. You should go apply to education. And I didn't do the traditional route in Canada. You go apply to your bachelor's degree at, say, one of our local universities. Right. Well, I first I did my bachelor's at um, Concordia University in Montreal. And then I left and I applied to Ottawa University in Ontario, our neighboring province. Right. I did an intensive uh, teaching degree there and I I got my general ed there. And then I came back to Quebec and I started working, sobbing as much as I never said no to a job. (laughs) If I was available, I I did it. And, you know, opportunities open. And I think these school boards acknowledge, or I guess they realize that for special ed children, they need different programs. You can't just have these standardized, sit in a desk, put them in a box and go. You need more programs. You need something more flexible. Correct. And when I was offered subbing opportunities, substitution opportunities to work with children with autism and specialized classes, and it was kind of like a pilot project Mm -hmm. over 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I said, sure. I didn't say no. I had experience. So I started doing that. And then that was especially also a little bit of the beginning of my career. So I just stuck with it. And years later, I'm like, I'm in education. And you don't realize that you you just did five years of education and you're a teacher and you, right. you don't reflect back on that. You just kind of go with the motions and you're like, I'm a special education teacher now. And this is what I do. And now X amount of years later, you're involved and it, so it picks you. That's the simple answer, right? Yeah, I totally get it. And I love that your career started with camps because mine did as well. I was at a sleepaway camp over the summer. We got a thousand kids every week. They rotated out every week. But I just feel like when you start that way, you know the joy of education and you know how to make it fun because that's where you started. And so even when you're in the four walls of the classroom, you're still that camp counselor at heart and you're making education fun. Is that how you see it as well? Oh, 100%. If I can't reflect anything back to my camp experience, yeah, <laughs> it's not fun, right? So you're right. exactly what it is. 
Exactly. You're one of the first that I've heard have that similar camp to school pipeline. So that's neat to make that connection. So let me tell you how it basically works over here. And then you can tell us what's different or or what's the same. So let's just say that we have a first grader, kindergartner, that we're starting to see that they're kind of not performing maybe on the assessments. And so we start kind of observing them a little bit closer. We go through a very detailed process before we even test them. You know, we make sure, first of all, like they don't have sight problems because maybe they can't read because they can't see. And we do a hearing check. So we do a lot of those preliminary things. We do a perhaps a psyche valve on some of them to make sure there's you know, it's not ADHD or whatever. That's a real learning disability. And so school psychiatrist works with them for a while. Of course, the parents are involved in all of this. They can stop the process at any time and say, no, you may not test my child. And so then once they're tested and if they are found to have a learning disability, then we go through the process of finding out their, we call it IEP, an individualized education plan. How can we meet their special needs? And so because, of course, special education students are all on different levels and some of them are really gifted in math, but they struggle in language arts. And so we're going to craft their plan based on their needs. And then all the teachers will meet and agree that these are the modifications that this child needs. And this is what we're going to do. And then we have those meetings biannually. We have it twice a year to see, are we accomplishing those goals that we set with the student and the parent and the teachers? And that's kind of how the special education works here. Some students have one-on-one where they have, we call them parapros, a teacher's aide with them through the whole day. We try to make it very individualized. So that's kind of our system, the nuts and bolts of it getting straight to the point. How does your system work in Canada? It works similarly, but our provinces work differently. So Quebec, Ontario, British Columbia, the provinces are responsible for their education. We have the federal government and the provincial government. Right. The federal government doesn't get involved in education, so the provincial takes care of that. And in okay. Quebec, it works very much the same way. Maybe the processes are a little bit different like in terms of how you've been identified and stuff. But oftentimes, let's say there's uh, medical professionals that are involved with parents beforehand. Right. And parents, let's say, for example, with autism, you might see signs at like two years old. So parents bring them to the doctors, maybe they get a flagged or a diagnosis, and Quebec gives money and helps parents up until the age of five, if let's say, for example, for a child with autism. So that helps them get basic ABA uh, services or things like that. And if they're pre-identified, then they let the school boards know once they come of age and they get assessed, do they need extra support? Are they okay? Can they function in a regular classroom setting? Sure. If not... Then the school board and the parents, they work together, say, look, my child might need extra services. What do you have for us? And in other situations where maybe the parents are not honest with, let's say, their child situation, sometimes they show up and it's, hey, you have a classroom of 20 kindergarten students and then a child with special needs that wasn't identified. And then the process of getting that child identified or the extra support is challenging due to the lack of funding. We won't. Right. We don't necessarily have the bodies or the extra support. But if we do, maybe we've talked about it before and other people know, I've worked in several self-contained ASD classrooms. In the last couple of years, I was uh, like a resource support. Okay. So more like for children with autism. So if they need those kind of services, 
they're usually smaller classes, uh, maybe six or seven students, a teacher, and they say a behavior technician. So they can get those services if we know about their particular needs and stuff like that. So there are other programs. There are also other programs like uh, learning disabilities in general. Um, There's different classes. Like we have a variety of stuff. And then, like you said, once they get into the school system, there's an IEP. So parents, the students, you know, you identify what they need, you make the IEP, the teachers and the team work together, they collaborate with the parents, they put everything down. And with the pandemic, that's kind of changed in terms of the amount we review, Mm -hmm. because there's reporting periods. Right. Obviously, for us, it's supposed to be like an open document. It's supposed to, you're supposed to read it, you're supposed to use it all the time. Exactly. But in terms of actual reporting, I think we're at four reporting periods to refresh the IEP. Right. But sometimes the schools, each school does something different. The other thing is too, in Quebec, we have French school boards and we have English school boards. So we're divided along. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) We're divided along the lines of uh, politics. So that's the unfortunate reality. Quebec is majority French. There's a English community, an Anglophone community, what they call it. I'm part of the English community. Right. So we get less, okay. we get less money for the English community. That's just the way it works. Uh-oh. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but their system, I, I don't know particularly how their system works. I've heard of similar circumstances or programs, but I can't speak for the French school boards, but I, I know generally how the English school boards work. That's very interesting. I have gone to, and this is a shame. I don't really remember where it was. I, yeah, it was Quebec. We drove up from Maine to Quebec one time. And I remember very distinctly in America, of course, we have lots of different languages, but the very, very, very predominant one is English. But up there, you're right. It was straight down the middle. It was French speakers or English speakers, and it, they were it seemed to be about 50-50. And another thing that you said that I identified as a difference between our systems is it sounds like you guys can do a lot more identifying before they go into kindergarten because you have that healthcare system where basically everyone is covered. And so that stood out to me, as you said, that doctors and parents are already working on disabilities or or learning disabilities well before they ever see their first year of school because of, and I'm thinking that that's probably because of that pretty universal healthcare that you guys have. So that's very interesting. And it gives you a jump start on addressing those issues for sure. Yeah, it, it definitely helps. And you could see the difference with parents or students that have severe needs that don't get that extra support mm-hmm. because the funding gets cut off from the government right away. Like as soon as they turn five years old, that's it. That's done. You're on your own. So it's wow. a little bit challenging. But I mean, like you said, we're a little bit lucky that we have that extra support and we have our healthcare system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So for our listeners, well, we're all teachers anyway, so we probably already know the importance of early and often. I was just actually on another episode that won't come out till later talking about my son with a speech, seemingly had a speech disability. And we, before he was two years old, we had him in speech therapy and the kid talks more than probably any two-year-old I know. Like he, it, it helped. And so it's just so important whenever we have those students that have gotten that help before they hit the halls of the school. So, um, but thank you for all the things that you do as a resource teacher. I know that is not a easy job. You go through things that the rest of us don't have to. And usually you guys do it with a smile on your face. So I, we appreciate that. Tell us a little bit, though, because you start talking about how things have changed during the pandemic, even maybe your reporting periods, the number and how often you do them. Tell us how in the world did you, because it seems like you work with some more profound kids with maybe autism or needs, at least. 
how in the world did you meet their needs digitally or how are you beginning to <laughs> meet their needs adequately during the lockdown? It's a interesting question just due to, to the nature of how the pandemic unfolded. Yeah. Because initially when it when it uh when the pandemic hit, we shut down completely. Right. And we were we were instructed by our employers, uh the unions to not deliver or send any instruction home, anything related to teaching. We were only meant to contact students and parents to say, are you okay? Do you need anything? I mean, it was a weird situation. And at the time, I that was- That is interesting. Yeah, it was It was really, it was a little peculiar because we have also a private school system in, in here in Quebec where the schools, they work separate from the school boards. Sure. And it's different because parents pay for the students to go there. So teachers, uh, I guess they, they had to scramble around and they were teaching online right away. Sure. Well, maybe not right away, but more or less while we were shut down when the initial pandemic hit. Mm. So we weren't doing that. We were just contacting parents mm. and students and making sure they were okay. And, you know, that's, that's hit or miss. Like parents have their, their jobs and they have families at home and they can't answer. So right. yeah, that was a little bit hit or miss. And at the time I was a resource teacher for children with autism. And I did that for two years. Mm -hmm. And after the first month or two of being locked down in Quebec, then the school boards and unions got together and said, okay, you're going to teach the rest of June. So the last four weeks of the school year, we were able to we, wow. Yeah, it was it was really strange. We were able to finish the school year remotely, and I was not working with necessarily with the students I had initially. I was kind of put a bit everywhere to support the school and the teachers to see what they needed. So okay, it was a little bit awkward, and also at the time I had terrible technology. Like I had a really old computer. I had I didn't I wasn't set up for anything like that. <laughs> but right. That initial part was difficult, and I just tell the teachers, like, what do you need from me? Can you go in a breakout room and work with some of the students one-on-one? -on -one? And so that's that's what happened the first time around. And okay. then the second year of the pandemic, we were face-to-face -face the whole year. So last year, we were face-to-face -face the whole year okay. with a couple of online days. But the difference is, since I was resource and I worked primarily with kindergarten to grade four for last year, we tried teaching them how to use Google Classroom and PowerPoint presentations and things like that during the school year. So in the event that mm. we do go online or if mm -hmm. there's a shutdown, they kind of had those skills to work independently or do some sort you know, online and remote learning. And Interesting enough, it did happen a couple of times and the students, some of them were able to upload like, uh, you know, files to Google Classroom and things like that. Right. And during the year, I got to see some of my students from kindergarten who were, let's say at that time, grade three, you know, they were in my, let's say, specialized classroom in kindergarten. And then they're in a regular classroom come grade three. And I watching them create PowerPoints and doing oral presentations in front of the classroom and expressing themselves digitally. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was like, that was success, right? Like you don't know what kind of impact you have until you see it necessarily. So that right. was interesting. And then there was a couple of times where we got online last year with children with varying needs. So I did help out some of the other teachers in the closed classrooms and basically to keep it simple, because depending on their communication uh, abilities, we did a lot of uh, videos and songs uh, remotely with Google Meet. We did storytelling, very simple stuff for the children that really struggled remote learning. And then you would send some stuff home. Right. For the parents, 
you know, whether it's uh, phonics work or tracing and, and just nothing too overbearing because the parents don't have time. They're working and they're working from home. And, you know, it's more or less Absolutely. just to try, try to keep yeah. the, the kids stimulated. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. And then this year, we, I don't know how it is where you are right now, but the COVID cases are, have gone through the roof. So there's over 10,000 cases a day here. Omicron. And we shut down December, I want to say December 21st was the last day. And we were supposed to have two more days of school, but we didn't. Okay. There was no online teaching for those two days. Basically, we were scrambling around and having meetings saying, this is what's going to happen in January. Right. So come January 6th or 7th, they told us, have your Google Classroom ready and get ready to be online for two days, 10 days, three weeks. We have no idea. So wow. now I'm thinking really... How am I going to meet the students I have this year digitally? Because they have basic skills. They need a lot of breaks. Many of them are not fully verbal and they need a lot of stimulation. So thinking of it like that, because I was looking at this before and it's going to be something simple. We're going to do circle time online. We're going to do some interactive games. I'm going to do some uh, PowerPoints. We show visuals Mm -hmm. and it's going to be concrete questions like what's this? What's this? And try to get them to draw. Yeah. Try to get them to draw so I can tell the parents, you know, have something handy, paper, pen, uh, whiteboard, marker, something like that. And I'm going to do story times and uh, some, some singing and things like that and keep it simple. And like, I can't expect these students to do anything abstract, like a PowerPoint presentation or uh, right or anything like that. So simple is the word, you know, and then I'll let you know how it goes. <laughs> Yeah, no, that sounds like a plan to me. If I had a student in that situation and you were giving me that plan that you just laid out, I would totally be grateful for that. And I just want to throw in something else too. I put up a blog post on our website, Teach This Teacher blog, about in the possibility that you go back to digital learning. You know, these are some tips and hints and tricks. And so hearing you all making that decision, it's very timely because I was thinking, I don't know if this is a real possibility because here over over here in America, it's like, we're not going to shut down schools at all. And so I was, I don't know if this is a possibility. Am I just, you know, spinning my wheels, putting out this article about going back to digital learning? So, so it is a real possibility. Yeah. The Omicron variant is spreading like wildfire. And as I try to remind everyone that I talk to, saving lives is the most important thing that we can do. Education is super important. But it's hard to learn if you're dead. So <laughs> that's that's my motto. Or and, it, and it's even harder to teach if you're dead. So um, yeah, for sure. So I was going to ask you as well to just give everybody tips and tricks. And so I, I meant to say this at the beginning, and I'm going to say it multiple times now. I'm going to say it at the end as well. Mr. Mike is um, actually on Twitter and he's a very prolific tweeter. And so if you want to follow him, it's at Mr. Mike MTL is his handle. And the reason I'm telling everybody this now is because you are a people person and you really connect with people, as you can see from your 20 something Mm. thousand followers. So, but my question for you is how do you encourage, I feel like you're probably a great, you connect with your students very well too. How do you encourage your students to achieve their goals despite their learning disabilities, despite their obstacles, whatever they have? I feel like you would be a wonderful teacher. You know, if I had a child, I'd be asking for you to be my child's teacher from what I know about you and see online. So how do you do that? How do you encourage them to achieve their learning goals, their social goals, whatever goals they have, despite the obstacles that they face? Obviously, it depends on the student. 
and persistence. Mm-hmm. You be persistent. You need to really practice. And if they haven't done something a thousand times, they haven't mastered it yet. And that's as simple as waving hi to somebody or spelling mm. or writing, fine motor abilities. And for children right. with basic needs who really struggle with communication, uh, fine motor skills and things like that, you need to deliver instruction and activities that meet their needs and interests. So if they really like sensory and they have struggled with phonics, you need to do sensory activities that focus on phonics that makes them feel like they succeed. Mm. You kind of have to gauge their feelings and emotions because they can't tell you, hey, uh, Mr. Mike, I, I don't feel like I'm getting this or this is not working out for me. They can't tell you that. And right. they may display it in behavior. So you need to have a good read of their behavior. Right. Why are they fidgety? Why are they getting upset or why are they crying? And part of that is knowing what they like. And you have to try to get to know them. And it's hard. You have to try to get to know them quickly, right? During the year. And sometimes if they're new. Exactly. Right. And then sometimes with students in that case, it takes a couple of months to really know their interests. And they'll come along. And you could see, especially even students with are nonverbal, they'll come along. They'll take your hand and they'll point to things and they'll show you stuff. And then you gain, oh, they like Paw Patrol or they like like animals. And you can kind of like, use those interests to bring them in yeah. and and you can see the difference because mm-hmm. the difference is the behavior will tell you if you're doing the right thing or not right if you're not doing the right thing you need to change your methods for students like that that's how you kind of gauge if you're meeting their goals and uh their goals because mm-hmm. they'll be happy i think yeah. that's the simplest way i could put it my wife's already a fan of this podcast and she's really going to be a fan of this episode because she was she worked in a self-contained classroom and she said some of the very same things that you said. And she's going to be glad to hear someone else affirming it. I think a lot of teachers, I don't know if a lot, but some miss that what you just said. is. And I love the point you made about finding something that they're strong in, something that they're weak in and mix them. I mean, that's simple, but I wouldn't have thought to say that. So thank you for that tip. And for anybody that's still in the classroom struggling for that, I'm sure that's going to help them as well. Well, let's move on to a little um, shameless plug. I'm going to plug it for Mr. Mike here because you are an author of a book, a book of poetry, actually. So tell us what is your book, Turn Off the Lights, about and what made you want to write it? Well, I'll start off by saying that I always wrote poetry on my own. So from 15 or 16, I always say 16, but for, you know, in high school years, I always wrote on my own and I, ne- I didn't take any, I didn't think of it, of anything. So I just put it on the side and I had an English teacher that really, uh, he always encouraged me to write. He says, your, your writing is good. And, you know, obviously your writing now compared to when you're 16 is completely different, but <laughs> right. right. So I've always written uh, for, for over the years, like I, I wrote a lot and I stopped and I wrote and a lot and I always used writing poetry as a, a journal, essentially a journal to help express feelings. And uh, I think growing up, I grew up in a kind of traditional household with mother, father, traditional roles, even though, you know, my mother worked as hard as the men in terms of in life in general, sure. women did certain things and men did certain things and you didn't really express your feelings as a male, right? right. So there's that. And then you go through life and then ironically, it ties into my job because I was in a self-contained classroom and I was sitting down and the students were, they didn't mean any malicious intent. That one of them was pushing me from behind when I was sitting and he was trying to be friendly and another one got excited and he ran by and he kicked me in the head and I happened to be sitting over. Oh. So I got right on the side of the head Yikes. and I went to the doctor a couple of days ago and I started having headaches and things like that. She's like, we have a concussion. Mm. 
but it's very mild. And, um, you know, uh, I would take a couple of days and then go back to work and you should be okay. And, you know, I, I guess I didn't realize the extent of which it was bothering me. And it took a while. And I played a lot of sports and I, I worked out at that point. And then, I, you know, that went through the year. And then uh, I went back to school the next year. And, um, and then uh, I got a student dropped into my classroom. I met him on a Friday. Had a meeting with the team, the psychologist, the speech and language pathologist, everybody. And they're like, oh, uh, here's a new student. He's going to start on Tuesday because on Monday we had a head day. We had no school on the Monday. And I said, okay, no problem. And he seemed, everything seemed fine. And he was from a, he was from a French school board. And there's certain ways that uh, students get transferred. But in a long story short, he showed up on Tuesday and we were having difficulties with him right away. Sure. He scratched my arm. I was bleeding. Like it was pretty intense. He, uh, he slapped out uh, a lunch monitor mm. and then um, I'm just like, okay, I'm, I'm going to keep him away from the classroom. I informed everybody, we'll just get through today. So I was trying to walk him down the hallway and um, I was standing up and I'm, I'm about, I'm 5'10", a little bit taller than 5'10". And okay. he did like a flip kick and uh, he kicked me in the top of the head and I was like in a fog. I, I didn't know what was going on and I managed to get him upstairs and uh, the rest of it's kind of a blur. My wife took me to a hospital. So that put me off of work for four months. I had a doctor said, the neurologist said it was a mild concussion. But in this situation, I lost my ability to read. I couldn't write. Yikes. I couldn't butter toast. I couldn't put my socks on. Mm. I was like a shell of myself for a while. And, you know, and I, I was crying like every day. I don't even know why I was crying. I was upset. I was emotional. I was angry. Wow. And it really bothered me because I, I love to read and I like to write. And I just, I didn't have that anymore. So Part of my goal that my neurologist set up for me was, he's like, you need to put five minutes a day aside to read or write. He's like, you need to do it and it'll get better. So I did it and mm. progressively got better and better and better. And he says, your long-term goal, you need a long-term goal. What is it? I'm like, well, I write poetry. He's like, why don't you make a book? He's like, I just, you know, oh, and, wow. I, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I didn't think much of it at the time, but I was like, okay, I'll do that. And then as I progressed further in my the healing process, yeah. I was like, I'm going to self-publish my book just for fun. Like, why not? And I worked on it. I, it took a while to recuperate. Like I was having headaches and, and side effects for over a year and stuff. And um, after when I was ready to go, I put it together and I initially made my book. It was much shorter. It was called Owl's Moonlight. I put it on Amazon and then I did it and I was like, great, I did it. Like, great job. And I showed my wife and I said, I said, <laughs> I said, I think I could do better. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, well, I, I feel like I rushed this because I felt better and I had to do this because of my concussion. But now I want to do this. I want to do this a little bit better. And she's like, okay. So then I started working on um, turn off the lights yeah. and I made it thicker and I changed the cover. And, and I'm not saying I'm a professional or um, I self-published. So I, we did the editing process ourselves and um, I'm happy. I'm proud I did it. And like you said, like I interact with a lot of people on Twitter. So I get messages from people and they, uh, they tell me they really connected with some of the poems. Like it's just my way of expressing myself. And I think I wanted to share that. And I think the overall theme of the book is really mental health, okay. right? You may find some stories in there or uh, peculiar poems or anything specific that people connect to, but for me, the goal of that book was mental health. Like, it's okay not to be okay. And writing was my healing right. process. And that's why I put that together in summary. That is quite a story. And I know I have a little bit of knowledge because I have actually two friends that went through what you did with the concussion. 
And doctors just cannot figure out really a lot of times why the certain symptoms, I mean, depression and just thoughts that are, I mean, borderline, honestly, suicidal and just horrible side effects from those head injuries. And so to hear that you use this as a mechanism to overcome that is just amazing because you're just walking along, living your normal life, and then some kind of incident in you're changed for a very long time. So that is amazing. I am actually reading the book on my Kindle right now. And so the poem that touches me the most is Growing Old because I have a ritual to not really celebrate my birthday. I don't make a big deal out of it because I'm like, why am I celebrating growing old? This is not, (laughs) I know it's a little morbid, but um, I'm just going to read it really quickly because it's very, very short. It's growing old. Aging is persistent, a choice that we never get to make. And that is exactly how I feel about growing old. And so as Mr. Mike said, so many people are finding a poem that connects with them and like, oh, somebody else feels the same way I do. And so if you look at the reviews, guys, on Amazon, we are at a 4.8 out of five stars. People love this book. So many people say that they read it several times over. They feel blessed or some of the comments about this book. Um, it strikes a chord. So go and look at those reviews and check it out. But we're going to do you one better. Teach This Teacher Podcast is going to give away a copy of Mr. Mike's book, Turn Off the Lights. But Mr. Mike told us in this episode how tall he is. So the first person that tweets to us, our Twitter handle is at Teach This Teach. If you tweet Mr. Mike's height. (laughs) That will earn you your free copy of Turn Off the Lights. You can get it on Kindle right now, but if you want a hard copy of Turn Off the Lights, tweet at us, Mr. Mike's height, and let us know what you're doing to earn your free book. And the first person that do, we will send you a book to your address. So thank you very much, Mr. Mike. Uh, We really appreciate it. I heard you say that you'll come back and tell us how the rest of the school year went. So we might hold you to that. <laughs> so um, look for an invite for us later on. And we really appreciate it. Well, it definitely was my pleasure. And I thank you for having me. This is a it's a great experience. And I appreciate the opportunity to share myself. And I would I'd definitely like to come back. And all your Twitter followers know that you had been considering a podcast of your own. Did you, Have you made up your mind on that? I had my friend over the other day and we were talking about it and I said, I want to try. We'll see in the come January. I'm going to sit down. We're going to do some demos. I'm going to try it out. I'm not as great as you will be as you, you have like, (laughs) well, thank you. You have like a good interviewing skills and stuff like that. And I don't know if that's my cup of tea, but I'm going to try it out and we'll see how it goes. I won't make it about education. Absolutely. So let's do some collaboration together. And if you decide to pull the trigger on it, you can come back on and promote that and tell us how it's going. And that'll be a collaboration that'll benefit both of us at both of our podcasts. So thank you very, very much for spending your time with us. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. And uh, happy holidays. Thanks. Today, I want to really encourage you to go check out our YouTube channel, Teach This Teacher. Please subscribe. We have the best content coming out with some minds that are greater than mine. 
We have people creating content for our YouTube channel. And I'm telling you, it's some good, good stuff. Things that I wish I had known just a few years ago when I was in the classroom about how to engage with parents better and build a relationship, about how to create a better learning environment in your room. Guys, it's some good stuff. Go check it out. Some of the videos are super short, under five minutes. Um, Some of them are a little bit longer. They go more in depth. I'm on there a lot, but we do have other people starting to add content. Go check out our YouTube channel, subscribe, because more and more people are starting to give better and better tips. It's teachthisteacher.com on YouTube. I have to say, too, that hosting a podcast is easier than I thought it would be, but it's only become easier with my producer, Janelle Wold. You've heard me promote Janelle before, but I have to keep doing it because she's doing such an excellent job. And so if you have thought about getting into the podcasting business, check out jwoldvirtual.com and you can get in contact with Janelle and understand why I keep her on as my podcast producer. That's jwold, like world without the R, jwoldvirtual.com. Now for the part of the show where you guys make me very, very excited to share how you interact with the show. So our winner for our first trivia question and the question from last episode was, which event in U.S. history made education more widespread in the southern states? The winner is Darius from my home state of Georgia. And he knew that the answer was the Civil War. So he gets a $5 Starbucks gift card. Good for probably one good Starbucks drink if you don't try to get fancy on us. So congratulations to Darius. Now you have the tweet of the week. And our tweet is from Arrington Weston. And this is the tweet. As black men in education... We make up 2% of the teacher population. We need to be vocal about the support we need. That way, we not only join, we stay. And I love that tweet because I learned something and always like to learn. I did not know that the population of black educators was 2% of all educators. And I totally agree with that. I retweeted that tweet and I said, this needs to be said about 50 million more times. Black men in education are a huge positive. Any diversity is, but if you are a black male in education, you are doing a very important service and work for all students, not just minority students. And we're going to actually talk more about that with a black educator from Alabama. And that's about two episodes from now. So thank you for tweeting that out, Arrington. The tweet from Teach This Teacher that I want to highlight from this past week is this. It says, did we choose teaching? I say no. Teaching chose us. We were teaching our stuffed animals, our siblings, cousins, and our pets. We can't forget that when we get weary and well-doing. Guys, I love y'all's input. Please email us at Teach This Teacher Podcast. Remember, the question so that we can buy you a Starbucks coffee is, how tall did Mr. Mike say he is that very special, special education teacher in Canada that we interviewed? Send us the answer in and you get a Starbucks drink on us. I cannot wait to podcast with y'all next time. Thanks, everybody.